What a lively group. I think Kim should do announcements every Sunday. What do you think? Amen. This morning we are in Exodus chapter 1. You should be able to find Exodus. It's the second book in the Bible. Right after Genesis, Exodus chapter 1. From time to time I like to do a study on a prominent character in the Bible. In years past we've looked at the lives of Joseph and Daniel and David and Ruth and Paul. We've certainly looked at the life of Jesus on multiple occasions going through the gospel accounts. This morning we began a study on the extraordinary life of Moses and his story begins here in Exodus chapter 1. Father we ask you to bless this study as we move forward examining the life of this man whom you use so greatly. What a light he was to his generation. Encourage us to be those lights in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said that if you ever want to become great, then study the lives of great people. And Moses is one of the greatest men of God in all of history. Moses is mentioned almost 700 times in the Bible. His story constitutes about one-seventh of the whole Bible. His story in print form is about two-thirds as large as the New Testament. He's been called the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the emancipator, the lawgiver. James Montgomery Boyce said of him, apart from Jesus Christ, no person in history has made so deep or lasting an impression on the world as Moses. So we are studying the life of a great man. And this morning we begin with the circumstances surrounding the birth of Moses. You need to understand that Moses was born into an extremely dark, demonic, dangerous culture. Look what we read in verse 8, Exodus chapter 1. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us. And so go up out of the land. So Joseph is mentioned. Maybe you remember the story of Joseph, great man of God. He was born in the promised land. His brothers, remember, hated him, sold him into slavery at Egypt. Joseph experienced all sorts of hardships in Egypt, but eventually, according to the plan of God, he rose to one of the highest positions of authority in Egypt. He became second in command, second only to Pharaoh. Joseph was a beloved leader. Of Egypt. He was like a George Washington figure in the nation. 
He's the one who saved Egypt and most all of the world in that time of famine. So he was a very popular leader. And because of that, after he reconciled with his family, his family was allowed to come back and live with him in Egypt. And in Egypt, that little family of Hebrews grew into a nation of two million or so. All of that because of Joseph's favor. Exodus chapter 1 takes place about 400 years after Joseph. A new pharaoh comes on the throne. He doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember history. It's a very dangerous thing when a nation forgets its history. When a nation forgets the George Washingtons and its history. You know, it's sad. It's scary to me. We're 250 years old. And a lot of history is being forgotten or perverted and twisted. Pharaoh had forgotten all about Joseph. And so he looks around his country and all he sees is a land being filled up with these Hebrews. He's got security issues. He feels they're a threat. So he begins to say, we need to work shrewdly with these folks. We need to weaken them. We need to curb their population growth. So verse 11 says, therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. Gang, overnight, two million Jews living in Egypt lost their freedom. Overnight, two million Jews were essentially forced into slave labor camps. Powerful taskmasters were placed over them. They were forced to help Pharaoh build his cities, his canals, his walls. Some even suggest that they were involved in helping them build the pyramids. But they were slaves overnight. Can that happen? Can that happen in a country? Can a country forget their history? And some crazed tyrant come into authority and enforce things like that? It most certainly can happen. Happened to the Jews by Nazi Germany less than 100 years ago. Just like that, it can happen. Forced labor. But I love verse 12. It says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. I love that. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So they're trying to stop the growth, but they keep growing stronger and more mightier. And now it says the Egyptians and the pharaohs are living in dread. It's a word that means, yes, they're afraid, but it's also fear mixed with loathsome. Hating them. Can't stand them. So Pharaoh ramps it up. Verse 13. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. They made their lives bitter. With hard bondage and mortar. In brick and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Very important word in those two verses. Rigor in Hebrew means severity. Harshness, bitterness, 
made them work harder, longer, gave them all the back-breaking work, decreased their living standards. This was a planned program of Pharaoh and the Egypts to literally kill off Hebrews through slave labor. Kill them on the job. Can you imagine how difficult it would have been back then? No safety glasses, no hard helmets, no work gloves, no steel boot, you know, steel tip boots. Imagine all the injuries, all the accidents, all the death. The Bible says at this time, the nation of Israel in bondage began to cry out to God. They groaned. In a, it's an Arabic word that literally means the sound of thunder, a loud cry for help out of total misery and distress. That's where the Jewish people were. Yet they still were able to grow. They were still able to. So Pharaoh comes up with another idea, definitely under the inspiration of demons. Verse 15. And the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on their birth stools, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. Infanticide. Kill babies. Kill all the male babies. Now, there were a lot of Hebrews giving birth at that time. And so they had a lot of midwives that would help them in the labor, in the delivery uh, process. Two particular midwives are mentioned here. It's thought that they were the head midwives over a whole group of midwives. Pharaoh comes to them. We got a new policy. Spread the word. Send it down the chain of command. Whenever a Hebrew mother gives birth and you're there at that birth stool, if that, if that baby is male, kill it. If it's a daughter, let it live. This is genocide. This is Kill the sons, let the daughters live. Our Egyptian men will marry them. Horrific. Can that happen in a government? Can a nation get so dark that things like that happen? Between the years of 1979 and 2015, communist China implemented a one-child policy. You're, You're aware of that, right? You could only have one child. And in their culture, the male children had the, the bigger value. And so they would wait till the sex of their child was male. So many female babies were aborted. One male child. How dark. So Pharaoh tells these midwives to do it. Did they obey? I love it. Verse 17, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. I love it. They disobeyed. Here's an example where state law contradicts God's law. 
And when that happens, which law do you go with? Absolutely. These women knew you don't kill babies. Doesn't matter what the king says. You don't kill babies. You don't do that. And so they refuse. And the Pharaoh found out about it. Verse 18, so the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And I love it. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're lively. <laughs> they give birth before the midwives can come to them. I love that. Our women don't play. <laughs> they deliver babies quicker than Domino's delivers pizza, right? <laughs> we can't get to them in time. They give birth right there. It was a lie. It was a good lie, though. It was an act of civil disobedience, which is permissible in dark times. And God blessed them for it. Verse 20 says, therefore, God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was. Because the midwives fear God that he provided households for them. I love that. These courageous women. Many times it was the women who couldn't have children themselves that would become midwives. And here these courageous women said, we will not abide by this command. And God gave them children. And the nation continued to grow and prosper even in the midst of such difficult times. So Pharaoh ramps it up even more. Verse 22. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. Okay, we're not talking to the Hebrew midwives anymore. No more. Command to the Egyptian people, all the taskmasters, all my police, all my guards, all the people, Take notice, if you hear of a Hebrew family about to give birth, investigate. If you discover that a male child has been born in that family, kill it. Now, can you think of the nightmare surroundings scenario that would bring? Surprise raids at night in Hebrew villages. Hissing for the word of families that are pregnant. Turning your military into a bunch of baby hunters. Ugly, ugly, ugly. How quick, how quick a culture can become so dark. Oh, you forget your history. You get the wrong guy in charge. You go from forced labor to completely debilitating slavery to the attempt at genocide to state-sanctioned murder. How quickly things can go to a place that you'd never dream of. Taking you back to the Jews and the horrors with them under the Nazi regime. First came the denunciation of Jews in the popular press. Second, the denial of privileges. Next, the wanton destruction of Jewish shops and property. 
Then the indignity and humiliation of making Jews wear special badges, marking them as enemies. And last, the crowded boxcars, the concentration camps, and then the ovens. The great evil that mankind is capable of. And it's happened. It repeats through history. Now, let me tell you this right now. A culture that goes that direction is under the control of Satan. That is the mark of Satan. When Satan and the demons of hell are allowed to run amok in a culture, that culture will absolutely become a culture of death. And slavery and persecution of God's people. It will absolutely happen. And one of the biggest marks of Satan upon a culture is infanticide. Killing babies. Satan hates kids. Satan hates children. Satan growls at the birth of every single human being. He hates the human race. And so they have been targeted throughout history. In the Old Testament, you read of pagans who would offer children to their silly pagan gods. Here, Pharaoh, kill the babies. Remember when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Herod ordered what? Kill the toddlers and babies in Bethlehem. This is what Satan does. A culture of baby murder. Now, I, my heart is hurting for our country. A couple years ago, stat came out, one million abortions. The only thing good about that, it was down from 1.6, which has been the peak. One million abortions a year. That's 2,500 abortions every day. That's 105 abortions every hour. That's about two abortions every minute. And then I look at some folks in our culture, and they have this violent, militant, mob mentality of delusional people fighting for the death of kids. It's their religion. We have legislation that's being offered where you can, you know, kill the child that survived a botch abortion. Term limits all the way up. It's horrific. Years ago, this happened to me. I don't know. Sometimes you know how things happen to you and you can't forget it. Just this, I remember this sweet moment in my life. My Connor, he was about one, maybe a little under one. And I had to go to the grocery store with him and Kim and Lindsay were at home, and so I had my, my baby with me, and he's, he's got his arms wrapped around Dad's neck. And we're walking into Albertsons, and this old elderly gentleman, total stranger, had no idea, starts goo, 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 goo. You know how they do. And he looked at him, and then with tears in his eyes, he says, that's a beautiful baby, son. You take care of that little boy. And I looked at him and I said, I fully intend to, sir. That's a culture of life. 
Do you understand that's a cult? Only a devil could make people kill their greatest assets. Turn people into where they don't care about children. Moses would be born into that culture. And I'll tell you what, God had heard the cries of his people. God saw what was going on. And God was going to bring deliverance through a little baby. And so Moses was born. Look at verse 1, chapter 2. It says, And a man of the house of Levi went and took his wife, a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. So a couple from the tribe of Levi, they're married. They're living in those horrific times in Egypt where all this is going on. Later, we'll find out that their names are Amram and Jochebed. We also find out that this is actually their third-born son. They have a 15-year-old daughter at this point named Miriam. They have a three-year-old son named Aaron. But here in this horrific time of history, Moses is born. And it says that he was a beautiful child, very strong in Hebrew, gorgeous, handsome, healthy, beautiful young baby boy. In fact, if you study Moses' life, throughout the scripture, when it talks about his appearance, he's a good-looking guy. He's physically beautiful. Josephus says... Moses was so handsome growing up that while living in the court of Pharaoh, people would go out of their way to walk by the nursery just to admire his good looks. Can you imagine, parents, strangers, coming by to see your good-looking baby? You know, my parents had the same problem. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't. <laughs> For, with my brother. You know, it's actually a funny detail here because Moses wrote... The book. I was such a beautiful baby when I was born. More than physical beauty. His parents could see in this boy destiny. They could see a special. In fact, we don't read about this in the scripture, but a lot of Bible scholars tend to think, and I agree that maybe... Moses' parents were given advance warning that the, an angel or somebody told them, you got a boy that's going to change history. Kind of like the angel that was sent to Zechariah and Elizabeth, told about John the Baptist, and Mary and Joseph were told, of course, about Jesus. It's very possible. They knew. So they hid him. They protected him. For three months. Now, can you imagine the stress of that? trying to keep a little baby quiet for three months. Can I trust this neighbor? Have the soldiers heard? Well, they could only hide Moses for three months. The language implies that they could only hide him for three months, that they had to do something. Like he got discovered So they had to implement a plan. Verse 3 says, when she could no longer hide him, 
She took an ark of bulrushes for him, daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank, and his sister stood afar off to know what would be done to him. You know, you read that story and you think, where in the world did she get that idea? You find this little basket? You make it floatable? Take your little three-month infant, maybe put some hay in there, maybe some clothing, put them in there, put them on the Nile River? Where'd that come from? It used to be very confusing to me, but I've come to understand that this was a strategic plan. This was thought out. In fact, I believe God gave them this plan. That little word that says bulrush, it could also be, uh, it's used of ark. The only other time this word is used is when God says, Noah, I want you to build an ark, build a boat. I think the, I think the, the Lord said to them, Build a boat for your little baby. Because I think everything is strategic. I used to think that they just kind of pushed the boat out on the Nile River and just let the current take it. And wherever it ends up, that no, the language here is they strategically placed it in a specific place on that river. And they strategically stationed Miriam to watch. And you find out later that they've been uh, casing the place. They've been checking things out. They find out that that's a very important section of the Nile River. That's where the Pharaoh's daughter comes out to uh, bathe. They knew where she bathed. They knew when. And so they put that boat there. And I think that the thinking is we're hoping that she'll find him. And rescue him. So they have this plan of action. But still. What faith. Mom could you put your little infant. In a boat. And put him on the Nile River. By faith they did that. And the plan worked incredibly. Look at verse 5. Then the daughter of Pharaoh. Came down to bathe at the river. And her maidens walked along the river side, giving her privacy. She's bathing by herself. Her maids are on the, on the riverside. When she saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby wept. So she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Worked perfectly. She spots the ark. Now, I love this detail. She opens the basket, and right on cue, the most beautiful baby on the planet goes, (laughs) broke her heart, absolutely warmed her heart. She fell in love with baby Moses, decided that she wanted to have compassion, that she wanted to raise him. In fact, according to tradition, this certain daughter of the Pharaoh wasn't able to have children of her own. And it was something that she wanted all her life, and possibly even on that morning or that evening, she's thinking about it, and here comes this baby just at the right time. 
Well, Miriam springs into action. Verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Hey, so you want to take this? I know a perfect nurse. So Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother, Jacobed. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew. She brought him to Pharaoh's. Isn't, that, isn't God good? By faith, you, put, you give your little baby by faith into the hands of the Lord. Now his mother will get to nurse him, raise him. We don't know how long for after the period of weaning, maybe three, four, or five years, possibly as long as 12 years. She gets to nurse and raise her own child on the Egyptian payroll. <laughs> God is good. God is so good. And so God's little star is born. And he's going to shine. And nobody knows it yet. Pharaoh and all the Egyptian officials, they have no idea. But the deliverer of God's people will grow up in the heart of their palace. What a story. Moses is a great man. Moses would not be great without great parents. Hear that. The story of Moses isn't possible without great parents. Jacobet and Amram, think of their courage, think of their faith that they had for their son. They could see destiny on their son. They could look in their son's eyes. They saw beauty. They saw a plan. They saw God's hand. Mom and dad, listen, your children are beautiful. They're beautiful. They have destiny on them. God wants great things for your kids. And as a parent, you're a part of that program by which your children find God's plan. Psalm 127 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Those kids are a reward. Your children are special. Protect your children like Moses' parents did. They hid them. Hide your children away from all of the junk that's out there that can destroy them. Protect them, watch over them, especially when they're young. And then Jacobed and, and, and Amran, they get Moses back for, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years. I guarantee you they poured truth into him. They told little Moses about the living God. They no doubt told Moses about his Hebrew heritage, that one day he would be going into the Pharaoh's court. Oh, they, they prepared him. They prepared him. Parent, prepare your kids for life. Train them up in the ways of the Lord. You don't have them for long, do you? We don't get them for long. We also see 
the parents of Moses doing something that's very difficult for a parent to do, but I want to encourage every parent here needs to. You have to learn to release your children into the hands of God by faith. God gave Moses to Jochebed. At three months, she released her baby into God's hands. Then she got Moses back. After about five or six years, she would have to release him back into the court of Pharaoh. Parenting, that's a, it's a series of releasing. Trusting God with your kids. Doing everything you can to protect them. Trying to raise them up, but ultimately recognizing they belong to him. And you release them. Listen, parenting's scary. I remember when Lindsay was born, our firstborn, I didn't sleep. I was worried about her. SIDS, right? Sudden infant death syndrome. I got up every hour and I'd lay my hand on her belly or her back to see if there was breath. I lived in anxiety and finally Kim said, dude, you need to get a grip. You need some sleep. You're getting grumpy. And I remember at that point thinking, God, Lindsay's yours. And it's like putting her on a boat and releasing her, trusting God with her. And I'll tell you, there's a series of those things. When your kids start driving, there's a releasing. When they start dating, when they grow up and go to college, even when they're adults and they face things, And there's things that you can't do, and all you can do is say, God, I trust you with my son. I trust you with my daughter. You got to get to that spot. Never forget, God loves your kids more than you do. And they belong to him more than they belong to you. We get kids for a little bit. Now listen carefully. You can't give away what you don't have. If you don't have faith, how do you give it away to your kids? How? If you don't have spiritual health, how do you give that away to your kids? You got to have it. Mom, dad, you got to have faith. You need God in your life. You need to submit to him. By the way, maybe you're here and you think, well, I've I'm a little late to the party. My, my kids are all grown. And maybe some of you as Christians, you have prodigal kids. Listen, that you're very concerned about. You've got to turn to the Lord. You've got you to have faith. You've got to turn to him. And don't ever give up on your children. Keep praying for them. God can turn the corner. He really can. He can, he can restore years of pain. But you got to have faith. You got to have a relationship with God. Maybe you're here this morning, you're young, you're a teenager, you're at home. Listen very carefully. Maybe you've grown up in the church in a Christian family. Faith has to become yours. Mom and dad's faith can't be passed to you automatically you have to have faith you have to receive christ 
please understand how loved you are, how much your mom and dad loves you, how much your church family loves you. But listen, it's got to become real for you. And let God take your life and use you. You know, this story this morning is really a wonderful picture of a much greater story, a larger, a larger story. This is a story of the gospel message. The Bible says that we're all born into a culture of death. We're all born into a fallen world, a place of darkness and slavery. Satan is real. He's a terrible master. We're in big trouble. But God in his mercy and grace heard the cries of people in great need and sent another baby, a greater baby than Moses. He sent his son. By the way, there's a lot of similarities between the birth of Moses and the birth of Jesus. I I kind of see the ark that little baby Moses was put in. It's very similar to the manger that Jesus was put in. Children were being killed at both births. Did you know that Jesus was forced to live in Egypt with his folks for a few years before they returned to Nazareth? It's a foreshadowing of the great deliverer. Moses would deliver the people of Israel. Jesus would deliver sinners of all tribes and nations. Jesus can do that because he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. If you want faith, you need to put your trust in him. Let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Father, I cry out for children this morning. I pray your blessing upon children. I pray for the children in this fellowship, the children that you've blessed families with, grandchildren. I pray for their safety. Lord, I pray as as parents we would see the importance of pouring into our children. Lord, how amazing it is to see how, how history can repeat itself over and over and over again, even going back 4,500 years ago. How there is an enemy at work that wants to destroy people's lives. Lord, I pray that as your people, we would be lights We would stand against the culture of death. I pray that we would be people who honor you and live for you and stand for truth. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I'll just ask you do you have faith? Have you received Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? Do you have a faith that you can give away to kids and grandkids? Is it real for you? Young person, do you have faith? Have you received Christ? Have you become born again?
You can by placing your faith and trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins and rose again. He'll, he'll forgive you. He'll change you. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. And you just say, Lord, I'm coming to you individually. I come to you all by myself. Just me and you. I'm coming to you. Here's my heart. Save me. I put my faith and trust in you. I pray that you change my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Wash away all my sins. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to, to live for you. Let's all stand together. Will you join us standing as we close in this last song together?